This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Is finding true love just a matter of supply and demand? Economist and Idea City presenter Marina Adshade says so. She'll tell us all about dollars and sex and what we should do to succeed in the marketplace of romance. Well, sometimes the fastest way to someone's heart is through the stomach. Prominent food writer Michael Pollan says if we take up cooking, it will also improve our health, bring families together, and even promote democracy. Today, he'll tell us about his new book, Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The Social Housing Agency, Toronto Community Housing, is being accused of needlessly evicting vulnerable Zoomers. A new report charges that TCHC staff failed to counsel elderly tenants face-to-face about falling behind in their rent before kicking them out of their homes in 2011 and 2012. The death of one senior is alleged to be connected to his eviction. The case appears to echo that of Al Gosling, the 82-year-old man evicted from his subsidized bachelor apartment in June 2009 after failing to keep up with paperwork verifying his low-income status. Locked out, the frail elderly man lived in the stairwell of his old building until he was taken to a shelter where he picked up an infection that killed him. Law enforcement officials in India are condemning an increase in cases of elder abuse. Contrary to traditional values, in India's cities, elderly parents are often looked on as a burden by their married children. A court has sentenced a man and two others to life in prison for murdering his aged father in a property dispute. The judge stressed that while there was no justification for killing anyone, killing an elderly parent calls for a greater punishment. I can't feel that way. In fact, I I, I don't think I'm old. That's Bob Edwards, the oldest licensed driver in New Zealand and one of the oldest in the world. At the age of 105, he's been driving for 88 years, so long that the first car he drove had a lever instead of a steering wheel. For much of his working life, Edwards captained tourist and car ferries, fibbing about his age so he could work beyond the mandatory retirement age of 60. Now Bob Edwards has no plans to give up his driving, just as he intends to keep working out every morning and regularly cooking meals for himself and his wife, who is 91. This week, we lost Mario Bernardi, the famous conductor who founded the National Arts Centre Orchestra. Born in Kirkland Lake, Ontario, Bernardi was raised in Italy. He studied piano at the Venice Conservatory and eventually moved back to Canada, studying at the Royal Conservatory of Music. In 1968, he helped launch the highly respected National Arts Centre Orchestra. 
Bernardi personally interviewed the musicians and built the orchestra from the ground up. He then went on to lead it until 1982. He continued to conduct other major orchestras around the country and spent his final years at a retirement residence here in Toronto. Mario Bernardi passed away last Sunday at the age of 91. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Many of us believe it's an unromantic, even mercenary way to look at love. But economist, author, and Idea City presenter Marina Adshade says the dismal science of economics has a huge impact on love and sex, and if we understand the marketplace, we'll do better at it. I reached her in her office at the University of British Columbia. What are the biggest misconceptions about the relationship between money and sex? I think the number one thing is it's so cold-hearted to think about love in terms of economics, and I don't think that's fair, and I don't even think that's true. Economics isn't, you know, a way of saying, you know, you shouldn't care about romance, you shouldn't care about having a physical connection with somebody. It really just describes the way that we find each other on a market. And I think when people think about it, they'll find that it's actually pretty accurate. The second thing is, when it comes to love and and searching for love, is that women are sellers on that market and men are buyers. And um, the reason why people aren't matching is because women set their prices too high. And we hear this commonly when people talk about economics of sex and love, and I really just don't view the market that way at all. Is it it an old sexist way of viewing things? I think it's a very naive way of viewing things. I think it is sexist. I think that it's kind of based on some type of, you know, 1970s notion that what women are really looking for is to have somebody to pay all the bills while they stay home and take care of the family. And most families, you know, Canada in particular, just don't, they just don't look like that anymore. And I think women are looking for different things in their relationship, and, I, and men are too. You know, we look at economics and sense of supply and demand and buyers and sellers. You know, all those markets have money, and the market for love doesn't have money. It's a very different type of market. And so in the market for love, we're all buyers and we're all sellers. It's, it's a little bit like a barter economy. That's why it takes a long time for people to find someone you know, to do business with. There's no third-party intervention like with an actual barter network. Nope, I can't sell my charming personality to a third person (laughs) (laughs) and have them sell it on to somebody else. No, and that's why it's a complicated market. But it's it's not equally complicated for everybody. I mean, you do make the point, you talk about your mother saying you've waited too long or whatever, that at certain age groups it becomes a more difficult market. Yeah, so what happens is the market becomes thinner. So in, in economic sense or business sense, when we talk about thin markets, those are markets that don't have as many buyers and sellers. And so it's, it becomes more difficult to find someone to uh, match with. As you get older, the markets become thinner. But, you know, that's less of a problem than it was 15, 20 years ago. You know, 15, 20 years ago, if you were an older single, uh, it was really difficult to meet new people. But now we have the Internet, and not just for online dating, but we have Facebook and Instagram and other ways of, of meeting single people. So even for older people, I think the market is actually getting a lot better. You would seem to be talking about people in their 40s, but does the market become easier again as people get a little older and uh, maybe they divorce or uh, they lose a spouse? Uh, does that open things up a bit more or does that make it even more difficult? You know, I think the market when you become older is actually is really very interesting because 
One of the mistakes that we made when we think about the market for older singles is that we assume that women, older women are looking for the same thing that younger women are looking for. Uh, you know, and that assumption is that, you know, where younger women are looking for long-term committed relationships, that older women are looking for the same thing. And we make the same mistake for men. We think that older men are looking for the same thing that young men are looking for, like series of short-term relationships. And I don't actually think this is true. I think that, and the data bears this out, is that, we get a bit of a reversal when people become older, where older women, um, you know, a lot of them are, are quite happy to be on their own. They, they don't necessarily want somebody else to take care of. A lot of these women have spent their lives taking care of, of somebody, and they, they probably did that quite happily. But, you know, when you get older, you get a chance to, you know, focus a little bit more on your own needs. Whereas older men, um, a lot of them are looking for, you know, somebody to spend their twilight years with and, and hoping to find somebody who's going to be both a companion and possibly later on a caretaker. So you get this flip that happens uh, when people become a little bit older. I, I, is, you know, it's interesting because when, as men become older, they start looking for women who are closer to their own age. And as women become older, they start looking for younger men. Uh, <laughs> and I think this is driven by this, this fact. Now, how do we use uh, this information that you're giving us to help us find the perfect or almost perfect partner? Okay, so um, for full disclosure, I'm single, and I've been single for a long time. And so I'm perhaps not the best person to ask for about how well, to find theoretically. the love of your life. But theoretically, I mean, there, there's lots of advice that you can get from taking the economic perspective. So, for example, I, I mentioned the fact that markets are thin. One of the problems that we're seeing right now is that people go onto the larger markets that are created by the Internet and by the online dating sites. And the first thing they do is they make those markets artificially small by, you know, narrowing their choices. They say, I'm only going to search for somebody who's this height, or I'm only going to be willing to date somebody who's got this much education or, or uh, you know, has, shares my religious or my political beliefs. And so they make their markets a lot smaller and I think that's a big mistake. Uh, I think that people need to keep more of an open mind. It's time-consuming to search. But if you keep your market larger, you, you have to potentially do better off um, than by making your market smaller. You know, I, I don't think anybody looks back on a relationship in the past and says to themselves, you know, I would have been a lot ha- happier had he only been an inch taller. You know, these things, they seem very important to us when we're searching, but they're not necessarily important when it comes to long-term relationships. Marina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's terrific. And uh, I really look forward to meeting you at Idea City. I can't wait. Dr. Adshade will speak at Idea City on Friday, June 21st. There are still some tickets available for the conference as well as a special discount for CARP members. Go to ideacityonline.com for details. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Do you cook? Is it something you teach your children and grandchildren? Food guru Michael Pollan believes cooking is an essential skill and far too many of us are losing it. In just a moment, you'll join me to talk about Cooked, a natural history of transformation. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. The salt is going to draw the liquid out of the cabbage. The cabbage is full of liquid and create the brine, basically. That's food guru Michael Pollan teaching me how to make sauerkraut. It's an example of one of his favorite modes of cooking, fermentation. He joined me at the Zoomerplex commissary while he was in town to promote his new book, Cooked, which argues that getting back to cooking is the single best thing we can do for our health, family life, and community. 
In the book, you divide cooking in a way that corresponds with the four traditional elements. Mm -hmm. uh, this one was earth, earth fermenting, and we have fire, and that's... That's barbecue. Yeah. It's, it's, it's what we've been doing for two million years, which is cooking meat over a fire. And that, that's really when cooking is invented. And then uh, I have water, which water. is cooking in pots. In pots, and yes. And that doesn't happen until about 10,000 years ago, and it was an, a tremendous advance for humankind because it allowed us to use agriculture. Um, you couldn't really have agriculture before you had cooking in pots because most of the grain you grow in agriculture needs to be softened and uh, turned into porridges and things like that. So not, you can't toast wheat over yeah. a fire, or not in any quantity. Uh, and then air is baking, which is another advance that happens about 6,000 years ago. I want to talk a bit about the fire part. So you apprenticed with barbecue masters. Yes, in the south. And, and yeah. barbecuing is not throwing some steaks on the grill. Not traditionally. Those guys who are really good at it, have been doing it for a long time in the South, would not call grilling on your, you know, your Weber grill in the backyard barbecuing. They'd call it grilling. But of course, everybody in the South has a different definition of barbecue. So if you go to Western North Carolina, it's pork shoulder with a sauce based with tomato. You go to the Eastern part of the state, no sauce, whole hog. Uh, and then you go to Texas, it's, it's brisket and sausages, and, and every one of these schools regards every other one as some kind of abomination. It's not the <laughs> real thing. So I went to Eastern North Carolina, where they practice what struck me as the most kind of primitive, unreconstructed kind of cooking we have. Basically, it's a whole hog cooked over a wood fire for a very long time and a little salt, and that is it. And it's the most beautiful food, and it's incredibly flavorful. And they cook at a very low temperature. And that was a real discovery to me, because I, I always cook meat at a high temperature outside. I found it very interesting where you kind of compared that the religious aspect of that. You kind of looked back at animal sacrifice and also talked about how the act of barbecuing elevates the person doing it into some kind of priest. Yeah, well, it's very interesting. If you go back to the Old Testament or the classical Greeks, which I did in my research, the word for um, priest, butcher, and cook were the same. It was the same person did all three functions. It was such a big deal to cook meat that um, it became a communal ritual. And the priest oversaw it, decided who would get what cuts, and there were always lots of rules. And, you know, they, they knew something we've forgotten, which is eating meat is a big deal. You know, there's a lot at stake. An animal has died. We love it, um, but we need to learn to share it and be generous about it. And it's only in very recent times that you can eat meat without a care in the world, and, and, and it's cheap, and, and you forget that there's an animal involved. And there is a lot of self-dramatizing men involved in the barbecue world, without question. And they don't even know it, but they are descendants of those priests. You talked about how the three forms of cooking that have the most showmanship are dominated by men, and cooking in the pot is left to women, and it gets a lot less fanfare. Yes, I do. I spend some time on the gender politics of cooking, which are a problem and also pretty comic uh, when it comes to men. Uh, men like to barbecue. Uh, yes. <laughs> as Claude Levi-Strauss, the great anthropologist, said, men roast and women boil. And there is a deep history for that. Um, in ancient times, grilling of the meat was tied to the hunting of the meat, and it was about death and killing. And women were nurturers, and they were kept away from that process. And they cooked inside in the pot, more domestic, more modest. But there's no contemporary reason for this at all. 
one of the problems with cooking and one of the reasons we turned against it was the burden was on women's shoulders exclusively. Um, and so when they went to work, it wasn't realistic to expect that they would also uh, do the childcare, do the cleaning, and do the cooking. But rather than complete that renegotiation of the division of labor in the house, which the feminist revolution was really calling for, the fast food companies came forward and said, stop arguing, we've got you covered, let us do it. And we all leapt at that. It let men off the hook, it made it easier for women to get into the workforce, which was all fine and good, except it turns out it's had this huge cost on the quality of our family lives and on, and on our health. So what is the way forward? The way forward is to basically rediscover the, the pleasures uh, and rewards of cooking and um, get everybody back in the kitchen. Well, I'm hoping with this book to, you know, not lecture people into the kitchen, but entice them into the kitchen by showing you that what you might regard as really hard or as drudgery is actually not so hard and is really alchemy. And it has the potential not just to change nature, uh, but change your household, your family life, and yourself. I, I agree, and I find the same thing, and it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Libby. Thank you. Cooked, a natural history of transformation is published by the Penguin Press. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Night and day, you are the one. That's the music of Cole Porter. Today marks the anniversary of his birth, and in just a moment we'll pay tribute with Frank Sinatra singing one of Porter's biggest hits. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. It's time for your International Arts Datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, The Boat Factory is a play about the heyday of shipbuilding in Belfast in the late 1940s. The Boat Factory is part of Brits Off-Broadway. It's in previews at 59E59 Theatres. In Chicago, see a retrospective of works by Cuban-born American artist Abelardo Morel. He's become internationally renowned for art that uses the language of photography to explore visual surprise and wonder. The Universe Next Door is at the Art Institute of Chicago. To London, England, you just might think you've gone back in time to see the Beatles. Let It Be, the musical, celebrates the 50th anniversary of the Fab Four at the Savoy Theatre. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Day Club. Night and day, you are the one. That's Frank Sinatra with a bit of Night and Day, one of the many classics penned by Cole Porter, the American composer behind some of the biggest stage and screen musicals. Some of Porter's best-known tunes include Anything Goes, Night and Day, Let's Do It, Let's Fall in Love, I Love Paris, and Too Darn Hot. These, along with many of his other pieces, have become standards. Today marks the 122nd anniversary of Cole Porter's birth. And to celebrate, we'll hear Frank Sinatra with one of his biggest hits. Written for the 1934 musical Anything Goes, here is I Get a Kick Out of You. My story is much too sad to be told, but practically everything leaves me totally cold. 
The only exception I know is the case When I'm out on a quiet spree Fighting vainly the old ennui And I suddenly turn and see Your fabulous face I get no kick from champagne Mere alcohol doesn't thrill me at all So tell me why should it be true That I get a kick out of you Some they may go for cocaine I'm sure that if I took even one sniff It would bore me to riff Thickly too Yet I get a kick out of you I get a kick every time I see you standing there before me I get a kick though it's clear to see you obviously do not adore me I get no kick in a plane flying too high With some gal in the skies My idea nothing to do Yet I get a kick You give me a boot I get a kick out of you That was Frank Sinatra with I Get a Kick Out of You, a song written by Cole Porter for the musical Anything Goes. Today marks the 122nd anniversary of Cole Porter's birth. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thank you so much for joining me today. Come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snyder. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bandrill. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.